Good morning to you again. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. We're, we're concluding the scene that we started last week. So we're going to be picking up in verse 29 and reading to verse 36. Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 36. And you can follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays, gives you light. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask for Your help now. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we would understand with faith what You have revealed to be true in the Scriptures, particularly what You have revealed to be true about Jesus Christ. Help us to grow today, Father, in the grace of the Gospel truth in the midst of these evil days. We pray this all, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, one of the many blessings of regularly reading the Gospels is that we're reminded of how surprising Jesus' ministry often was. Time after time in the Gospels, Jesus defies our expectations. And this is not coincidental. It's actually central to what Jesus has come to do. The kingdom of God, you may remember if you've been with us through our series in Luke, the kingdom of God is upside down compared to the ways of this world. So according to Jesus, you die to live. You find greatness through being the least of all. You pray for those who persecute you and you love your enemies. It's all upside down, you see, in the kingdom of God. People tend to assume that they're very familiar with Jesus. But then when we read the Gospels, we're reminded of how surprising Jesus often is. His ministry defies our expectations. And our passage this morning is one such example of that feature in Jesus' ministry. Here we find Jesus doing something that no one would expect. The crowds, Luke tells us, are increasing. There seems to be momentum building around Jesus' ministry. In most people's minds then, this would be the time for Jesus to expand His platform, right? Now would be the time for Jesus to capitalize on this moment and really see things take off. 
That's what you would do if you were trying to win friends and and influence people. But surprisingly, that is not at all what Jesus does. In fact, Jesus purposefully does the opposite of that. Notice the first line, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. That's one way to handle the momentum. (laughs) Instead of capitalizing on the crowds, Jesus indicts them for their hardness of heart. Rather than expand His platform, Jesus calls out the crowd's spiritual blindness. Listen, I don't know much about expanding your ministry, but I don't think that's what they tell you to do in the textbooks. To condemn people and call them evil just when they're starting to come in greater numbers. It's surprising. (laughs) And that's what frames this entire passage. like, Like so many other instances in the Gospels, in Luke 11, Jesus defies our expectations. So, what is Jesus getting at? He certainly has a greater purpose than to simply be surprising, so what's the point? Well, the answer, friends, goes back to the start of last week's passage. If you look back at verse 14, you'll remember that Jesus encounters some controversy in His ministry. He casts out an unclean spirit in verse 14, and some of the people in the crowd respond with opposition. Some people accuse Jesus of working through the power of the devil, while others demand that He perform a sign. You see that there? Verse 16. The people in the crowd want Jesus to perform a sign from heaven, and then they'll believe. So this week's passage picks up at that point. Jesus has already answered the accusation about Beelzebul, and now He's going to respond to this demand for a sign, and that's where the surprise comes in. That's where we're alarmed a bit. Instead of coddling the crowd, Jesus confronts them. Jesus understands that what matters most in these situations is clarity. The crowd needs to be clear on who Jesus is. And they need to clearly understand what's at stake in their response to Him. You see, now is not the time for Jesus to think about building a brand or increasing His market share. The crowds are increasing for sure. And for Jesus, that means He should get more clear, not less. This is a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. I wish it were a hallmark of our churches as well. When it comes to crowds and momentum and capitalizing on the moment, Jesus emphasizes clarity more than anything else. That's not to say Jesus is harsh or abrasive. It's also not to say that smaller is always better in Jesus' mind. But it is to say that what matters most when you read the teachings of Jesus is clarity. If the stakes are eternal, and they are, you guys do know that right now, these are eternal things that we're doing. I hope you know that. If the stakes are eternal, and they are, then Jesus would say that we should be clear on the truth before we're anything else. Before we're clever, before we're funny, before we're pointed, before we're memorable. Be clear, Jesus would say. So that's what we want to do this morning. The point of the passage needs to be the point of our message whenever we preach. So that's what we want to do today. We should see these clear truths that Jesus lays out in response to the crowd's demand for a sign. Jesus highlights three clear points in particular, and each one gives us more insight into who He is and what He's come 
to do. So let's note these three clarifying points from Jesus. Let's note them together. We begin in verses 29 and 30 where we see that the ministry of Jesus confirms His message. The ministry of Jesus confirms His message. As we've already noted, verse 29, Jesus indicts the crowd as belonging to an evil generation. Now, Jesus is not saying that every single person in His generation is as evil or wicked as they could be. Rather, Jesus' point is that as a whole, His contemporaries are opposed to the things of God. In fact, the the defining mark of Jesus' generation is their refusal to submit to God's Word. That's the reasoning in verse 29. Why is this an evil generation according to Jesus? Because they demand a sign instead of listening to the truth that Jesus preaches. That's why they're evil. So this is key, friends. Here in Luke 11, Jesus defines evil as an unwillingness to submit to the Word of God. That's evil. The question of truth The question of what is true and what is not true, the question of God's Word as revealed in the Scriptures is a moral question. It's not primarily an intellectual question. It's a moral question. Why are they evil? Because they won't listen to the Word of God. How a person responds to God's Word reveals the state of that person's heart. So when someone in the crowd demands that Jesus do a sign, it reveals that they're an evil generation. It's an evil generation. They're spiritually blind. They have the truth standing in front of them in flesh and blood, and they would rather see signs. They see, but they don't see. And therefore, Jesus is not going to give them any sign. With one exception. With one exception. Jesus says no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. You see it there at the end of verse 29. There will be one sign given to the evil generation, the sign of Jonah. So here is one of the key questions of the passage. If you were studying the Bible on your own, here in Luke chapter 11, and you read this verse, this is the question you've got to answer. What's the sign of Jonah? Clearly, the sign of Jonah explains Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to His generation. So there's some link between Jonah and Jesus. What is it? What is the sign of Jonah? Well, it helps to remember the Old Testament context of Jonah's ministry. It's one of the more well-known stories in the Old Testament, so the big picture should be easy for you to recall. The Lord told the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance. Jonah, however, went the other way. He ran from God, which is always a bad idea. God is not deterred, so he chased Jonah with a storm. He caught Jonah with a great fish. And then God put Jonah back on dry land so that he could proclaim his word. And that's what Jonah did. Like a man back from the dead, Jonah goes to Nineveh and he tells them to repent for the judgment of God is at hand. Amazingly, the Ninevites repented. So you could summarize the ministry of Jonah like this. Jonah was a bearer of God's word whose ministry was confirmed by a mighty act of God. That's Jonah in summary. Jonah was a bearer of God's Word whose ministry was confirmed by a mighty act of God. That's how it played out in Jonah's life. When Jonah walked into the city of Nineveh, it confirmed for those pagan Ninevites that there was a living God and He was not silent. The living God speaks. 
And His Word is so mighty that it demands a response from everyone everywhere. That's what Jonah represented when he walked through the front gate of Nineveh. God speaks and you should listen to Him. And in a similar way, that's what Jesus represents to His generation. There is a God who speaks. And He has spoken in and through Jesus. And therefore, this generation ought to repent. The Ninevites repented. Will the Israelites of Jesus' day do the same? So on one level, that's the sign of Jonah. It's the manifestation of God's Word among you, and through His Word, God demands that you respond to Him. But on another level, the sign of Jonah is about more than the presence of God's Word. It's also about the confirmation of God's Word and the vindication of the one who preaches that Word. So remember our summary of Jonah's ministry just a second ago. Jonah was a bearer of God's Word whose ministry was confirmed by a mighty act of God. For Jonah, that confirmation was deliverance from the belly of a great fish for three days. Jonah sojourned in the heart of the sea, which to the ancient Israelites was a place of death and judgment. So for three days, Jonah was as good as dead. And God's action confirmed Jonah as the minister. The fact that God raised him up from the heart of the sea confirmed to the Ninevites, this man speaks for God. Friends, that same kind of divine confirmation is also at work in Jesus, but in a much greater way. Jesus has come with a much greater word than Jonah. And Jesus' word will be confirmed by a much greater act of deliverance. Jesus will spend three days in the literal grave. And then by the power of God, Jesus will crush death and rise again to new life. And in that moment, in that revelation of resurrection power, all the world will know that Jesus is the Son of God. All the world will know that this man Jesus is the Word made flesh. That His Word is God's Word. And that His Word is final and true and authoritative and it demands your life. That's the sign of Jonah that this generation will receive. Or to say it another way, to say it another way, the crowd says, prove it, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'll prove it when I die and rise again. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that finally and definitively confirm His message. That's why in verse 30, Jesus says the Son of Man Himself will be the sign. Do you see that? The Son of Man is Jesus. He says the Son of Man Himself will be the sign. Yes, Jesus' preaching, like Jonah's preaching, demonstrates the presence of God's Word but it's more than preaching that sets Jesus apart. The Son of Man Himself, Jesus in His flesh and blood, body, resurrected from the dead, He will be the sign to this generation. When He lays down His life and takes it back up. When He sojourns in the heart of the earth for three days and rises again to proclaim good news. That's how you know that this man comes from heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, we're reminded here We're reminded here of the bedrock truth that upholds our very lives and certainly our hope. How do we we know that we belong to the truth? Do you ever ask yourself that question? How do we know that we have believed God's Word and that we're bound for eternal life? How do we know? 
Answer. Because Jesus lived and died and rose again. That's the answer. This is the Lord's Day, friends. It's the Lord's Day because we gather together as the people of God who are defined by the resurrection of Christ. It's His day. We're His people. And it's His resurrection that assures us that we belong to the truth. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with assurance of salvation, or if, you're, if your soul is plagued with doubts, then I would encourage you to look where Jesus directs you to look. If you're trusting in Christ today, if you're a Christian, you have not built your life on a myth or a wish or a dream. You're not following a fairy tale or a legend. Now your hope is built on something much more solid than that. Your hope is a flesh and blood reality. A hope that's been sealed with the mightiest act of all. Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. He calls us to hear His Word. And with unmistakable power, He has also confirmed His Word to us through the work He has accomplished for us. His resurrection is the confirmation. And so the, the takeaway from this first truth is this. The Gospel of Christ is not simply the way you become a Christian. The Gospel is also the truth that keeps you a Christian. The Gospel is the anchor for your soul that holds you steady in the faith. So when you wake up in the middle of the night and you begin to ask yourself those questions like I often do, is this all really true? Do do I really belong to God? When you ask those questions, friends, answer them with the Gospel. Jesus lived and died and rose again. The tomb is gloriously empty. And therefore, therefore, His Word to us is true and sure and certain. His ministry, what He does, confirms His message, what He came to preach. That's the first clear truth from Jesus. As we're encouraged by that, though, we have to recognize that in in the passage here, the crowd in Luke 11 does not recognize the sign of Jonah. This is an evil generation, remember? Which means they have not responded to Jesus' Word. So, in verses 31 and 32, we find the second clarifying truth from Jesus. One that deals directly with those seeking a sign. Verses 31 and 32, the glory of Jesus confronts His hearers. The glory of Jesus confronts His hearers. Once again, Jesus goes to the Old Testament here, and He cites two examples of people who did respond to the revelation of God's truth. Both examples are surprising, as we noted a minute ago, and that's part of Jesus' point. His aim here is to alarm the listeners, to confront them with the precarious situation that they are in. So notice how these Old Testament examples work. First of all, in verse 31, Jesus mentions the Queen of the South, or the Queen of Sheba, as she's called in the Old Testament. Look at verse 31. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So Jesus is referencing here 1 Kings chapter 10, where Solomon's reputation for wisdom is so widespread that the Queen of Sheba, that's below Egypt somewhere in Africa, the Queen of Sheba travels all the way to Jerusalem in order to hear Israel's king. It's a brief but remarkable moment in the Old Testament. The Queen of Sheba is obviously not an Israelite, she's a Gentile. She's a member of the nations. And yet the wisdom of God possessed by the Son of David is so great 
that this Gentile queen is, is drawn in. And when the queen meets Solomon in 1 Kings 10, she says, you're even greater than what I heard. Your glory is even more profound than what they told me. So you don't have to be a biblical scholar to understand what a significant moment that is. A king on David's throne receives the praise of all the nations. It's pretty important. Here in Luke 11 though, Jesus says the queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation. What's that about? Well, Think about a courtroom on the final day when God brings the generation of Jesus' day to account, the Queen of Sheba will serve as one of God's witnesses. If she traveled from so far to hear Solomon, then how much more should the people of Jesus' day listen to Him? The answer is much more. The Queen's willingness to listen is evidence that this evil generation is unwilling to listen. Jesus then makes the same argument in verse 32, but this time the men of Nineveh replace the queen of Sheba. Again, it's Gentiles. The point though is the same. The men of Nineveh repented upon hearing Jonah's preaching and their response will convict Jesus' generation. If the Ninevites heard and repented, then how much more should this evil generation? The answer is much more. So that's the thrust of Jesus' argument. But there's, there's something else to it that we ought to note. Jesus' point goes beyond historical examples. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing here is making a claim about Himself. So notice the final line, verse 31. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And then again, He says the same thing, verse 32. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the turning point, friends. And the point is both simple and profound. Jesus possesses greater glory than everyone who has come before Him. Jesus is greater than Solomon. His wisdom surpasses even the wisdom of Israel's wisest king. And Jesus is greater than Jonah. The word that Jesus speaks is greater than anything any Old Testament prophet ever declared. In fact, Jesus is the one to whom Solomon and Jonah pointed. Jesus is the greater Son of David, the very wisdom of God in human flesh, sent to establish God's kingdom and reign over all the earth. Jesus will receive the praise of not just one Gentile queen, He will receive the praise of all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation all across the earth. He's greater than Solomon. And Jesus is not merely a prophet declaring God's Word. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh for us and for our salvation. He is the sum of everything the Old Testament ever said. He is the fulfillment of all that God promised from Genesis on through Malachi. This Jesus possesses a far greater glory. It's the glory of God Himself. And therefore, if previous generations responded to lesser persons, how much more should Jesus' generation respond to Him? The answer is much more. That's the conviction. That's the thrust of the argument. That's the truth that confronts the people listening to Jesus. Even Gentiles, like the Queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh, even Gentiles believed God's Word. Will the Israelites of Jesus' day? They won't believe. And that's why they're an evil generation. They're demanding signs from heaven and in doing so, they missed the One who came down from heaven, the Son of God in human flesh. You see, it's all a call to repent. That's what Jesus is doing. It's all a call to repent. Instead of playing to the crowd or softening His message, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. 
if this generation will not repent, they will face the judgment of God for rejecting Jesus. Listen, friends, we're separated from Luke 11 by centuries. But, but this call in this passage comes down to us. Jesus is, is saying the same message to us this morning as He was saying to His audience. You, you may be here today and you may have heard the Gospel many times and still you may not have responded. You may even be familiar with God's Word. Perhaps your parents taught you the Scriptures or, or they took you to church. But at the heart level, you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. You've never submitted to Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, friend, then you need to hear this very clear word from Jesus. There is a day of judgment coming. That's what Jesus says. There's a day of judgment coming. And on that final day, everyone who has rejected Christ's Gospel will find that their unbelief leaves them condemned before God eternally. There will be no escape on that final day. Even the events of history will come together to demonstrate the foolishness of rejecting the Word of God. And and therefore, friend, God is calling you this morning to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. This is the sum total of God's Word. This is the grand, glorious message of the entire Bible. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come to save sinners from their condemnation. All have sinned, God's Word tells us. And all of us fall short of the glory of God. And yet God, in His great mercy, has sent His Son to fulfill what we could not and would not do. Jesus obeyed God at every step of His life. And then God put forward His Son to pay the debt that we could not owe. Jesus shed His blood on the cross to satisfy the judgment of God against our sin. And now, those who trust in Christ Jesus are saved from the wrath of God by faith in His name. That's the message of the Bible. That's the whole Bible's message right there. It's the greater glory of the Gospel. What God promised in the past, He's now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's no one greater than this man. So so trust Him, friend. Trust Him. That's the call of the Scriptures this morning. If we were going to boil this passage down to just one thing that you ought to hear and do, it's this. Trust Jesus Christ. You are hearing the Word of God this morning. That makes you accountable for what you're hearing. Trust in Jesus Christ. And believe. Don't be like the crowd in Jesus' day. Don't demand that God prove Himself to you first and then you'll believe. That's foolish, friend. Look to Christ, the crucified and resurrected Son of God, and believe. His ministry confirms His message, and His glory confronts you and calls you today to believe. To believe. That brings us to the third and final clarifying truth from the Lord. We've seen how the ministry of Jesus confirms His message. We've just considered how the glory of Jesus confronts His hearers. Finally, verses 33 to 36, you see how the Word of Jesus changes His people. The Word of Jesus changes His people. To understand this last paragraph, it helps if you'll look back at verse 28, which is where we ended last week. 
Look back at verse 28. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. That's where life is found, according to Jesus, in God's Word. Here in verse 33, Jesus returns to that same point, but now He's going to add a little bit more insight. Jesus reminds us in verse 33 that His Word changes those who receive it. Notice how it plays out. Jesus begins by comparing His teaching to a lamp that illuminates a house. Verse 33, no one, after lighting a lamp, you know this, in the Bible, light is a frequent image for God's Word. Jesus said something very similar to this back in chapter 8. And the point was to urge people to listen to His teaching. That's His point here as well. Jesus' teaching, His Word, is like a lamp. It's not hidden. It's on display in the world, out in the open, giving light to those with eyes to see. The key point, however, is not the nature of Jesus' Word, but the response of those who hear it. Notice verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Now the imagery gets a little hard to follow, but the main point is your response to the light of Jesus' Word. Jesus envisions your eye like the portal of your body. If your eye is good, then light streams in and it fills your whole body. Your life, in other words, is shaped by the light, by the truth of Jesus' Word. But if your eye is bad, then the light does not come in and your body, your life, remains dark and opposed to God. Now here's the fascinating connection that ties this whole passage together. Notice that word bad in verse 34. You see it? If your eye is bad... That's the same word that was translated evil back in verse 29 for the evil generation. So you should read those two verses together. Why is this generation evil? Because they have evil eyes that refuse to see the Word of God and believe it. That's why they're full of darkness. Because their eyes are bad. Their eyes are evil and they reject the light of Jesus' Word. That's why Jesus exhorts the crowd in verse 35 to be careful what they see. We're used to Jesus saying, be careful how you hear. Now He's saying, be careful how you see. It's a different part of the body, ears and eyes, but it's the same message. Be careful. Look at verse 35. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So it's the same point that we saw last week. There's no neutrality in response to Jesus. Your eyes are either good and you receive the light, or your eyes are bad, and you reject the light. But whatever it is, be careful how you respond. That's what Jesus is saying. Be careful what you are taking in to your heart and mind. It's either the light of Jesus' Word, or it's the darkness of this world. There's no neutrality, though, between the two. You can't live in the shadows. So be careful how you see, Jesus says. There is one new piece to Jesus' teaching, though. And it closes the passage on a positive note. Look at verse 36, where Jesus reminds us what happens when we take in the light of His Word. Verse 36, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Friends, that's a remarkably hopeful statement from the Lord Jesus. 
It's a remarkably hopeful statement. When God's people receive His Word, that same Word transforms us so that our lives now radiate with the light as well. It's a picture of spiritual health, spiritual growth in verse 36 where we go from darkness to light. Not not the light of our inner selves, but the light of God's Word that is received by faith into our hearts. You see, it's it's a hopeful picture. And it's a clear reminder that the power of transformation does not begin in us. One of the more sinister and deceiving things that the culture is currently telling everyone is that you just got to look inside to find the real you. Well, you can do that, but the real you is bad. You should look outside to the Word of God that's like a lamp shining in the darkness and you should get that lamp into your heart so that your life shines with the same light that that Word has. That's verse 36. It's hopeful. The power to change comes from outside of us, like a lamp shining in a dark room. So I don't know about you, but I long for some transformation in my life. If our, if our, if our hearts are like houses with all these various rooms, i got some really dark rooms. Maybe you do too. I, I want to change, in other words. I want to change. Next Lord's Day, I want to love Jesus more than this Lord's Day. I want to change. And I hope you want to change as well. And if so, if so, listen to Jesus in verse 36 and go to His Word as the light that transforms the darkness of our hearts to shine with the light of His truth. Friends, just think about the analogy of that dark room. If you were stuck in a dark room and you wanted light, you wouldn't just sit there and hope that maybe some light will come in at some point. No, you would get a lamp and you would plug it in and you would turn it on. So if you want change and transformation in your life, don't sit there while your Bible's on the shelf there in the darkness thinking, well, I hope I change someday. You're not going to. Plug in the lamp of His Word, turn it on, read, and be changed by the Word of God. If you want that kind of transformation, then you have to go to God's Word. to happen in us, then you have to go to the Scriptures and believe what, God, believe what God has revealed in Christ. It happens by faith, church. That's what I want to say at the end as we close. It happens by faith. Transformation in the Christian life happens by faith as we believe that God's Word, like light, dispels darkness. It happens by faith. The way you exhibit that faith each day is by taking up the Scriptures and reading and believing and acting on faith in obedience on what God has revealed. So really the final word of this passage is the same as it was last week. I told you if you come back this week, I'll say the same thing. I wasn't lying. (laughs) The way this passage closes is the same way it closed last week. You want to change? You want to be transformed? You want light to overcome darkness in your life? Take up God's Word and read. Believe it, obey it, and keep reading it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do ask for Your help that we would 
Take up the Scriptures each day to read, Father, believe and obey. We pray that we would do so, Father, in our own lives. We pray that we would do so in community with other Christians here at Midtown Baptist, that we would grow together as the people of God, shaped by the Word of God, living for the glory of God. We pray that that would be true, Father, in us. We pray, Lord, that You would please unleash the power of Your Word in our lives and in our church. Lord, we are, we are desperate for You to work. We feel the frailness and the weakness of our own lives, our own hearts. We see, Father, the very clear limitations of our own church. We don't want to look in, Father, as though we are the answer to all of our own problems. We are not the generation we've been waiting for. Father, we want to look to Your Word. And so we pray, God, we pray that You would please unleash the power of Your Word in our lives and in our church applied by the Holy Spirit. And lest the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Father, build our lives and our church through the power of Your Word. You say here in verse 36 that Your Word is like light and it transforms us. We pray, God, for that to happen. Prove Yourself, Father, again and again in our lives. Demonstrate Your power and Your might, we pray. We are desperate for You to work, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.